And we are recording. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the Barbell Nerds podcast. My name is Sean Santuzzi with my co-host, Will Rattel. Uh, today, we are welcoming Coach Lee Taft to the podcast. Thank you, sir, for spending some time with us today. Oh, guys, I'm honored. You kidding me? This is so fun. Uh, you guys are awesome. And so, Sean and Will, thank you for taking the time to have me on. This will be fun. Yeah, it's, it's an honor to have you because like uh, what I told you right before we started recording, you were probably one of the first um, coaches or presentations that I watched. And it's when you were talking about the, the plyo step, the hip turn and all these different oh, movement yeah. patterns that we get taught when we're playing sports to do. We get taught to not fall step and to think <laughs> about our first step and all that stuff. And it, it just you were one of the first people to really get me looking critically, critically thinking about all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, I, it's an honor to have you on here. Um, I really Thank appreciate you. you taking the time. You got so much stuff going on and we'll talk about it, but uh, I really appreciate it, man. Oh, no, thank you. And I appreciate you mentioning that because that's, uh, uh, as we talked about that, I took a lot of hits for a lot of years and then people started to say, well, wait a minute, I guess it does make kind of sense. I'm like, well, I, I didn't invent it. I'm just telling you what I'm watching and that's, that's what it is. So, yeah. <laughs> well, actually we can kind of just get a, uh, get to that right off the bat. So yeah. the one question I had for you is, do you think the, like the myth, I guess you could call it the myth of a, of a false step or plyo step. Do you think that's kind of starting to dissipate and go away a little bit in the sports world? Or do you still, do you still feel like football coaches, basketball coaches, tennis coaches are still, telling their athletes to think about that first step and and they kind of demonize that that false step yeah great question and i think i think it is gradually becoming more accepted that um the human person the athlete themselves that human side without being the athlete just the the natural fight or flight instinct they're starting to realize the athlete isn't consciously making that move. They're just trying to chase a ball or an opponent or whatever. And when it happens naturally, I think coaches are starting to realize like, well, yeah, I guess maybe that is, there is some merit to it. Um, but having said that, there still are coaches that do fight it. And I think they fight it because they were taught that it wasn't right. And their coach was yeah. taught that it wasn't right. So it's just a cycle that's never been broken. And I get it because you look at it and you say, well, geez, the foot's going backwards. Why would you want that? The thing I try to make it clear is the athlete's center of mass isn't moving backwards. The foot is repositioning to create a quicker uh, response off the ground. And if, if we look at physics, we understand, well, we're creating greater angles of force application, which gives us an action reaction. We're getting greater stiffness through the musculotendinous unit. The foot is being organized better to be able to accelerate. And we're now in a tilted pattern, pattern versus a vertical pattern, which is really hard to accelerate from. So when we start doing the math and we look at it, it's like, well, yeah, it kind of does make sense, you know, that the athlete does that naturally. So, yeah, it's kind of cool to, to watch and see. And that's how I learned it in the first place. Back when I was a college athlete in the, in the 80s, I would – I was always told, don't do that. Don't, you know, don't step back. It's a full step. And I started watching film and I noticed, well, everybody's doing it. And I said, I know I'm not thinking footwork when I'm guarding somebody in basketball or playing tennis. I know I'm not thinking. It just happens. And that's what kind of started this whole thing, you know, 30 something years later. So, yeah, it's kind of cool. You really revolutionized like how people take that first step and 
even just to create, like you said, create stiffness within the ankle. I guess my question on how to expand on that in your training for your athletes, how do you train that ankle besides just practice, practice, practice? What are some of the things you do to help create that in a weight room setting, create that ankle stiffness because it still has to have mobility as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think you can position the foot where you want it based on different range of motions and you can do, we can do like we know stability or uh, isometric or static type training is a really good way to build Mm -hmm. tremendous amounts of tension. We can do it in a split squat. We can get on a slant board. We can do some of Cal Dietz who's done some great stuff with foot things. We, there's a lot of things that we can do to strengthen the foot in a much more controlled setting. And then we can kind of carry that along into a little bit more dynamic, maybe even various forms of heavy carries and walking, because now you're taking that potential pause position of, let's say a split squat, when you're on the ball of your foot and the heels off the ground. So now we're really training that gastroc, that soleus, the whole foot complex to manage. But now we can walk with heavy load, maybe a maybe a hex bar, get in a hex bar and load it up or dumbbells and walk and just walk slow and go heel, toe, pause, heel, toe, pause. Things like that are great ways to develop strength and responsiveness to that weight and shiftedness because it's not just, even though we're walking sagittally, it isn't just sagittal. We have to be able to control that stiffness in all three planes of motion. So those are some great ways. And then of course, Sean and Will, we start building into like, you know, like pogo jumps or, you know, quick hops and quick jumps and things of that nature that automatically start to build that elastic response, which is a dynamic form of that stiffness we want. Yeah. Do you think there is some sort of general position, general archetype that you would consider like an athletic position that, um, that you could say you see in every sport, whether it's basketball, tennis, and maybe it's on the ball of your foot, maybe pigeon toed or, or toe straight forward, slight, slight hip flexion, sl- uh, slight knee flexion. Is there a position that you would say every athlete should get strong and comfortable and good into this so that they can accelerate forward, backward, rotationally, diagonal 45 degree? You know what I mean? Does that make yeah, sense? I do. Man, that's a great question because I really do. I think obviously all of us like if you took the three of us all of us probably have a level of knee bend and hip bend and ankle dorsiflexion that that that's kind of our sweet spot right i've always been a big fan of not forcing athletes to get too low unless they exhibit that really powerful concentric ability like they can just explode out of a low position if not or even that athlete i think there's that 45 degree knee bend or above, um, you know, kind of like if you can picture a basketball player shooting a jump shot, you know, they don't go down to a half squat, but yet their legs aren't completely straight. It's kind of that mid range, a little bit above a 45. I think that spot right there when the foot is um, straight ahead, like if the foot's turned out, I think we enter into plantar flexion, but for some athletes, they have to based on range of motion. We don't want to be too pigeon-toed because then we lock up on the, the lateral aspect of the, the ankle. But we, I think if we can get that, that forward foot position, uh, dorsiflexed, and then have the ability to respond quickly and use that elastic energy we talked about a little a minute ago to be able to explode. So 
I really do. I think if you can get an athlete, because most of the time when you think about it, we're rarely still, right? Like a base stealer might get in a stance, they might stop, set their feet, and then explode when they're ready to go, unless they're doing like a secondary lead. But most athletes have a little bounce or either doing something, yeah. getting ready to go. But you never see anyone get way down low, like you would do a, in maybe a front squat, you break parallel. You would never see that. It's always above that because now they can access not only the biomechanical benefits, because we're stronger the straighter we are, but we have enough bend to take advantage of elastic energy. And the part that most people miss, we have to have enough hip bend and knee bend, meaning our center of mass is lower because if I have to quickly accelerate on an angle, I have to have enough leg length to, to push outside my body to go in that direction. If I'm too tall, I can't get wider than my shoulders because my I'm so tall. The more I bend, the wider my foot can go and that allows me to be able to explode in any direction. So yeah, I love that question, Will. That's a good, that's a good question. Yeah. And so I've heard you say you don't necessarily teach movement or you don't teach certain mechanics. Um, and a lot of athletes are just going to self-organize to get whatever successful outcome they need in that situation. But in practice, when you're, when you're dealing with say a group of 10, 12, 15 youth athletes, how often do you see a situation where a kid just has like really bad mechanics that you have to go fix? And, and when you get in that situation, do you kind of just think, well, I don't know, they're 13 years old, they're going to grow into it and they're going to figure it out as they mature? Yeah, yeah, great. So absolutely. So I think what we want to do is we want to understand the model of the movements that we're going to be teaching. So I have seven movement patterns that I want every athlete to be able to do, okay? And so let's say we're working on linear acceleration. That's one of those seven patterns. If I look at the model that should exist the arm action stroke the knee action the leg position the shin angle upon contact all that stuff if i look at an athlete and i understand everybody has a little bit of bandwidth to the right or the left right they're not perfect they're not because most of them aren't elite sprinters who who are ideal but they're pretty some of them are pretty close if i can get them to understand or at least start working towards the model I'm very, and I had, this took time, it took patience, and I had to learn this. I'm very comfortable now backing up and keeping my mouth shut and just letting the athlete have time to explore that movement. Now, as you're watching, if it looks like they're going the wrong way, that's when you just reorganize them really quick and say, okay, I'll check for understanding. So let's say, Will, you were my athlete. I'd say, hey, Will, do you understand what I mean by arm stroke? And I want to see your pinky in the back on that first set, you know, get up by that back shoulder or by your shoulder blade and the front arm. I want to see your thumb somewhere up here. Do you understand that? And if you say, yeah, I do. Okay. I said, just be careful because you're coming across your body and you're not opening up your elbow. Let's work on that. And maybe we'll do a couple arm drills. Let's get the legs out of it for a second. And then we'll go right back to it. So I'll use a lot of guided discovery summary feedback to check for understanding. It's kind of like when you teach a little youngster to ride a bike, right? When they first get on it, you know they're not going to be very successful, but you know if they keep doing it, they're going to eventually get it. And I treat coaching that way because I want it to be very implicit. I want it to be stored in their brain by them learning it versus, versus me giving them rote memory. 
because then when the moment comes when they can't think about it, they need to just react and not panic. That's where I think we see a lot of failures in the heat of moment in, in athletics because players weren't allowed to figure things out. They were coached to yeah. themselves. Yeah. yeah. So that's how I treat that. Yeah. Did, did you ever catch yourself maybe in your younger years um, where you were, you were that coach that was over coaching over oh, yeah. <laughs> then you just screwed this kid up and now you, you've gone too far into it and he just can't get it fixed. Oh yeah. I got some, I got some uh, guys in the four, late forties now who have kids who probably still have trauma from my, <laughs> my over coach. <laughs> but yeah. I feel like we so, all have that at times. I think so. Well, you know, I came out as a, my degree was phys ed, right? So I came out, I've got this teaching degree, you know, I got my, my certification, my license, I'm, I'm, I'm licensed to kill now, right? I've been, I can coach anybody and I try, believe me. I just thought that was what we had to do. But it was funny because I remember we had professors that used to tell us, listen, sometimes just let them figure it out. Give them time. But of course, you're, you know, you're 22 years old. You want to fix people right now. So yeah. I did. And then over time, I just learned by studying and watching better coaches and, and just understood, you know what? Kids, before they could talk, learn to walk. I mean, they didn't listen to us. Say, hey, put your right foot down, then you left. They figured it out, right? And, 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 and most of these seven patterns I always talk about, that's what it is. It's just movement. And so if we give them time and then correct when you think they're going south on you, when they look like they're going the wrong way, then you jump in and you get them in the right direction. Yeah. Go ahead, Sean. Go ahead, Sean. Uh, that's, I was just going to say, it's a really good point. And I remember whenever I was coaching – my women's soccer program before I left UND. Um, I tried to make it a rule to everyone that like you get, when we were doing like speed, uh, speed work, like one coaching cue and then let them focus on that. And then hopefully they just could drill that into their head. And then if I, if I had the opportunity to write that cue down, I'd ask them what I told them last time and see who remembers and then we build off that. So it's exactly. like not overloading the system. Yep. Yep, that's right. What do you know, think about this. As humans, we learn, we learn by experiences. We learn by feel, by touch, by sound, uh, by kinesthetic, by proprioceptive feel. So when we are being instructed on something that is as detailed as our brain's um, connections and synapses that have to occur, if we think we can we can override that, we're, we're mistaken. Now, that doesn't mean we can't say something and the athlete can nod their head and say, yeah, I got it, coach. That doesn't mean they actually feel it. They actually know what it means until they've gone through it. That's why you see some of the greatest soccer players in the world are these kids who grew up, and you've heard this many times, who grew up playing, you know, in the streets, whether it's in Europe or South America, and they – they didn't get coached. They just played. And then they started getting coached when they're like 14, 15 years old. But, you know, when they're 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, they're just, they're having to, uh, you know, play in the environment and, and accomplish tasks with better players. That's how you learn. That's the way you learn. And then if we go to a mechanical thing, like, you know, a skill, like teaching somebody how to throw a ball. Yeah, you got to give them some some cueing and some feedback and some technique work, but then let them go a little bit and see if they can figure it out because it takes time. So, so I want to take this conversation a little bit to another 
throughout. So I, I want to ask you about the medicine ball, the fake throws. Um, yeah. so, Cause that's an exercise that I've seen you put out more like several times. And I think it's a really cool concept. Can you just kind of go into the, the details and how you like, how you thought of that exercise and the purpose of it and um, in what situations you use it with your athletes? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's so funny is there was two kind of techniques that I developed and I used and they both came out of when I was at Bulletary's Tennis Academy, which is now IMG. Everybody knows it as IMG. But when I was there, it was Bulletary's. This was in 1991. And I, I, um, I had these athletes at tennis players that I was working with, and I was trying to get them to understand what it meant to plant and then to be able to change their body's mass real quick. And so we had these medicine balls and I started doing stuff with them. I, I like, I would make them kind of like shake it and, and then no, just tell them, say, notice how that makes your body feel. I said, don't try to move the medicine ball. Don't move your body. And then we started doing shuffles. And then they had to stop it quick, violently. And that's how it started. So I, and at the time, I didn't know really what I was doing other than it made sense to me that if I can get them to stop their mass from moving one way by loading them above their center of mass, so the ball was above their center of mass up here versus just using their foot angle, I could get them to control it quicker. And it created amazing stiffness in their core. And so over the years, I just kept adding to it and I kept researching a little bit more about physics and science and how we, how that works. And that's how it developed. So now I have a whole system of being able to work with pretty much any athlete, whether I want to affect shoulder stiffness, T-spine, you know, core, hip, opening the legs up to have attack more adductor groin region versus, you know, closing it down and get some external rotator, lateral hip. And then integrating that with the core. So that's really how it, how it happened. And it's amazing how quick athletes adapt to that. And it helps them create stiffness on a foot plant. And so that's really how it happened. And that was almost 30 years ago. And it just kept spiraling into what it is now. I like that a lot. I, I will admit, I, I apologize. I've never tried it. and I've never used it. Now I'm going to go tomorrow. I'm going to go try it. Um, <laughs> but um have you done any research for different, I guess, weights of the medicine ball, like percentage of body weights? Is there something that you found that like is the gold standard of weight compared to body weight or is it kind of like playing around with force applications? Yeah, it, it really, I never dealt with it too much with their body weight, but what I looked at, and this is what I noticed, because here's the thing, you're dealing with three levels in the mm -hmm. horizontal in the vertical uh, vectors or planes, okay? Mm -hmm. So uh, if I held the ball at my sternum, right up against my sternum, we're gonna call that a level one. A level two would be half arm. A level three would be full arm extension, okay? So now obviously if I held a six pound ball and I held it against my chest and I moved it, that's not very, it's not that intense. But if I did it at a level three, that ball feels like a, like a 20, pound ball right so the, the adjustments I make is based on how they can control their body when they start going through these movements so I would so let's say Sean you were doing a movement and I had you out at level three and I noticed it was just tilting you too much to say Sean hey hold on next rep let's go to level two 
And if that cleans you up, I'm like, perfect, stay right there. And then we can, you can say, you know, it's starting to get a little bit uh, easy. I would say, well, let's go up and wait. Let's get out of the six pound ball. Let's go to an eight pound ball, but still stay level two. Okay. And then I can adjust you that way. If I want to go out there, then I can say, let's go back down to level six or a, a six pound or four pound and let's go all the way out and then I can challenge you there. And then the same thing vertically. So horizontal at the chest is also for the first vertical. Half arm here is, is level two and then all the way up is level three. So now I can challenge my frontal plane sway control. So that's, that's basically how we do it. Okay. That makes 100% sense. I love it. It's easy. Yeah. <laughs> They're tough. They're very challenging. Oh, yeah. I remember when I used to do clinics and demonstrate, I felt like I was in a fight because my ribs and my intercostals were so sore from, from all the violent stopping and the demonstrating of doing it. It just it crushed me every time. Yeah. And I've, I've tried to uh, throw that in with some of my tennis players too, and I don't know if I'm coaching it a little bit incorrectly, but they struggle with it. And I don't know what it is. But then what I've noticed is if I have them do a fake throw, come back the other way and actually release the ball and then change direction again and sprint, then it kind of clicks and they start to they start to figure it out a little bit better. I don't know if you've kind of seen the same thing or if you've tried that variation or what your thoughts are. Yeah, well, first of all, that's very smart on your end. That's good coaching because you saw the athlete struggling and you found a solution, and that's what coaching is all about. So that's really good. Now, the 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 biggest the best way to affect their control of it is to use an external um, area for them to avoid. So let's say if I, I always tell my athletes, I want you to go usually like from the bottom of one ear to the bottom of another. So that usually means they're going to end up at the shoulder, right? If I say shoulder, they end up outside the shoulder yeah. and I don't want rotation. So if I can keep it very violent and very short, like just inches, then I have them where I want. Now, if they go outside, well, all I do is I put my hand right where the, the threshold of how far I want them to go. And I just say, don't touch my hand and they'll stop it violently. It happens just like that. So that's a that's like a, a really intrinsic type of sensation for them. They know they can't hit my hand and they'll stop really quick. And if I add the jab or the shuffle to it, it's amazing how quick they get and the core just turns on and it, it decelerates that ball really fast. Awesome. Um, then, so the, there's one other exercise that I really like that I saw you post about is the, the swing lunge. Um, you know what I'm talking about? So, and it kind of just makes me think about a kettlebell swing. And I think, I think, I guess this is, isn't really related to our conversation, but I think a lot of people kind of miss what the kettlebell swing is for. Yeah. And like, I think kettlebell swing more than anything, it just teaches rhythm and timing and coordination more than like force application, power production. And so when I saw you do the swing lunge and you're swinging it outside of your body and you're in a lunge position and it's one arm, um, could you kind of just explain the purpose behind that, the concept, all the thinking you've put into that, that exercise as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for asking that question because that's kind of a cool, it's a cool way to get your athletes. And for me, because I'm a big foot guy, I'm a big foot and ankle guy because that's what's touching the ground. That's what's telling the rest of my body what to do or what's coming. 
So if I, let's say I'm in a left side lateral squat, a partial lateral squat, okay? And I just take my right hand, I'm on my right leg, right? And I just swing that outside my body and back versus using my left hand. I'm gonna have a totally different sensation with my foot controlling pronation, supination. I'm gonna have a different sensation of getting into my right posterior hip, right? Because if you can sit, if you can imagine me doing a, a uh, lateral squat, right? Now I add that, that, that kettlebell or a dumbbell swing, all of a sudden I'm fighting this frontal plane momentum, this artificial momentum, I'm fighting transverse plane, and it's gonna tell me really quickly what kind of range of motion my athletes have and what they can control. Because what you'll see is rather than being able to glide through that, they'll start to rotate out of it. They'll, because they can't get into their hip anymore, so they start rotating the spine, and they're like, okay, well, that gets me there. I'm like, well, that's not what I want. So then we know we have to work on that hip. And I have to know, though, because sometimes it might be their foot isn't allowing them to stay stable. You know, they just might have really bad sensation with their foot, or it could be literally they're just not getting into the back of their hip very well. And so that's why I love it. And plus, it's a great contralateral core trainer, just like the fake throw type stuff. Mm -hmm. Like it. And so, and this is just some, from what I've noticed. I do myself a lot of barefoot training with a lot of my athletes, especially from a speed perspective, whether it's running hills, whether it's just like literal sprinting on turf or grass or anything like that. How often do you change if ever the surface that they're sprinting on, take their shoes off? Because we all just walk around in foot prisons, if you ask me. So how do you, how do you change that dynamic? Because they're playing in their tennis shoes, they're playing in their cleats, they're playing in their spikes, whatever you want to call it, whatever they're wearing what's your process of going around that? Or do you take the shoes yeah. off and everything? Yeah, absolutely. I have a, a player that I'm working, you know, not so much now. I don't have many athletes now just because of the situation we're in, but I have a, an athlete I work with, baseball player, and uh, he starts with his shoes off. And in my garage, I have the player aerobic flooring so I can protect him. He's not on concrete. So we do, we, we, we roll his feet, we take care of all that stuff. And then we do all this three-dimensional warm-up type stuff, barefoot reaches and balance work. And then we'll do some of the A-series exercises with him barefoot, um, or he's in his socks. But I'll give you a better example. When I used to coach track and field, um, I would try as much as possible to get my athletes out of their shoes and on the grass and we would do things on the grass. And even if I had them in their shoes, we would go on the grass at times just to give them a different sensation. And the grass we went on was not really soft. So it wasn't like they were on, you know, almost like a sand type feeling. It was very low cut grass, pretty solid ground, but it was still softer than the track. And so we would do a lot of exercises there. We would get up to speed, you know, sprinting and, and some whisper type runs ins and outs, you know, flies and things like that. Um, and then I do like to go, as we work on them, we build up, I do like to get into some jumping on a nice surface uh, for the athletes, just so they, you know, so they actually experience the feel of the ground. Because like you said, a lot of, a lot of people, they just don't ever go barefoot anymore. They don't, they don't experience that. So I would try to build them. But I think it's good if you can change surfaces. I think that helps them. 
Yeah, it makes a massive difference being able just to, even if you take a slow motion video of people doing like little mini plyo hops, like the yeah. way the foot, the way the big toe, the ankle interacts with the ground, like you don't see that when they're wearing their shoes, which exactly. everyone always wears their shoes all the time, especially exactly. basketball players who are yep. never with oh, shoes. They, basketball players live in, in those those shoes that they wear they never take them off and they got and they got their ankles taped and braced it's, I know. it's awful it is too uh, yeah so lee we got a little bit of time left um before we get into kind of our last question that we always ask our guests uh i want to first of all congratulate you you put out your certification your tennis speed certification oh, thank tell, you. Us a, tell us a little bit about that like that's awesome it's exciting and uh go ahead promote yourself Oh, I appreciate that. I really do. Yeah, it's it's called the Certified Tennis Speed Specialist Course, and it's ctss.co.co. And yeah, real happy with it. I, I started my career in strength and conditioning really in tennis because I was at Bulletary's, which is now IMG. And, um, and that was in 91. And then I went to another tennis academy. Then I worked a little bit at University of Kentucky with their program. And then I've worked with so many tennis players. But... I, we just moved back down to Florida about three months ago, and I've been wanting to do more with tennis, but I was living in Indiana for a while, so I was like knee-deep in basketball all the time and, and everything else there, all other sports, but we got back down here, and the timing just felt right, so we dove into this project that took us a long, long time. It was a very arduous project, and so we just released it, and uh, yeah, real proud of it, real happy, and it's it's probably one of the first pro, uh, certifications that's geared just towards tennis speed and how you can train movement, you know, from warm-ups to assessments. There's a very detailed assessment and just all the facets of breaking down tennis speed. So, yeah, I appreciate you letting me share that, but it's it was a lot of fun and uh, and hopefully people really enjoy it. I think it's going to be a great addition to anyone's training program. I know Will works with tennis uh, right now at UND, so there you go, Will. <laughs> Yeah, and before before we get to our last question, I have one more for you. Okay. But so, like Sean said, I work with uh, tennis players at UND here, and I see them four days a week. And what they do is they go practice from two thirty to four thirty, and then they come um, to lift after. And the, like the training age is so diverse. Like there's some kids who come in as freshmen; they've never even seen a weight room before. And then there's some kids who maybe have two or three years of training experience with them. And most of what I do is just general strength training, trying to get their tissue strong. Um, but it's really nothing special. And I guess what, what kind of, what advice would you have for me as far as working with tennis players um, in the weight room? What qualities do you think they should be addressing, especially when they're coming from practice first and they spend two hours on the court and they're probably a little bit fatigued. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. And it is that, that, that puts us in this profession and you and your case, in this case, it's tough to get them after they've gone through practice. And, and I would say, and the one thing that I try to do, I'm real big on bilateral training and unilateral training. Uh, I think, I think athletes need to do it all right. But I spend a lot of time with my tennis, tennis athletes in unilateral training because I can reduce the relative load but because it's unilateral and I can vary their stances, let's say they're doing a cable press or a cable row, I can put them in a stance that can really initiate some great core work, great you know, control of, of rotation if we want. Um, but 
what it does is it really works their feet a lot. It works the control of their feet. So I'm real big on going with just different types of unilateral, whether it's lower body, hinging, squatting, stepping up, you know, pressing, pulling, because I, again, it's not too much load on their joints after they've had a hard practice but I can get a great stimulus just because it's unilateral and the brain is like, wow, I got to figure this out because that's a challenge to me to stabilize it. As we're sometimes when we go bilateral, in order to get enough stimulus, we have to go heavy enough. But if they're fatigued, then we risk just the, you know, the yeah. chance of them maybe not being technically sound. Yeah. Awesome. Over the, la over the last couple of years, I've really dove into that unilateral training and just it being more neural, neural almost more neurally demanding. And um, yeah, it's, it's, I feel like it's almost easier to regress and then progress, so. It is, yep, yep. Well, please, right. again, yeah, so thank you so much. Yeah, thank, so, thanks for taking the time to have a talk with us. We've been following you for a long time, so it's it's great honor to have you on. And with that being said, um, we'd like to ask everyone we've had on, who is someone that we should reach, reach out to that you may know that you'd recommend for us to reach out to? Oh, gosh, yeah. First of all, thank you for having me on. This was my pleasure and honor to be asked to do this. So I appreciate you guys are doing an awesome job. Um, you know who? I, I Gosh, there's so many good people out there. But I can tell you there's a, there's a guy who um, I know really, really well, uh, Ty Terrell. Uh, mm -hmm. Ty Terrell is uh, with the Atlanta Hawks. He's a strength coach there. Ty was my uh, assistant. When I was in Indiana, I opened up a place. He started in the profession with me, and then he got hooked up with iFast, Bill Hartman and Mike Robertson, and he was there for a while. Now he's, he's with the Hawks, and Ty is just phenomenal. He's a great one. Um, there's, there's certainly, you know, some of the other, you know, bigger names out there that you guys probably know if you, you know, if you get the Mike Boyles and the Eric Cresties and, and guys like that, I think are good. There's a guy who I think is doing phenomenal stuff in Philly. He owns a facility, uh, Jason Fairheller. Uh, mm -hmm. Jason does some real. I have it. I located right outside of Philly. I've heard. I haven't spoken to him yet, but he's on my list of people to reach out to. But uh, yeah. that is definitely a that is definitely a must have too. He he's a hungry coach, and he works mm -hmm. his tail off, and he does. He really he knows his stuff. He does a really good job. I've gotten to know him, and I was on a podcast that he did, and. And uh, he, he's a real good guy, too. So, yeah, those are some guys that I think they just got a lot of energy and they're hungry. And I, I think they would be great inter in people to interview. Awesome. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks, Lee. Fun talking to you, man. Thank you, guys. I appreciate both of you. Ron, thank you for the time. You have a great night, brother. All right. You guys, too.